Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, good morning. How are you? It's good to see you. If you have a Bible, let's open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is obviously not Matthew. Uh, As we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, we thought it would be wise to take a break out of the Sermon on the Mount to teach on what we are doing when we come together to the Lord's table, often called the Lord's Supper, what we do when we celebrate communion together as a local church. And it's been a while since we've taught on this, so we thought it would be wise to, to take a pause from our journey through the Sermon on the Mount to do this one-time teaching. So the primary instruction for this comes from 1 Corinthians 11 as Paul teaches that church. So if you don't have a Bible, as always, we'd love for you to use one of the Bibles that you can find in the rack in front of you, uh, under the chair in front of you. And again, if you don't own a Bible, you are welcome to keep that Bible. You're welcome, uh, well, I'm just about to repeat myself, you're welcome to keep that Bible. So how about third time's the charm? You're welcome to keep that Bible. Thank you for uh, praying for Robert and I as we, uh, we leave for India this week. Next few weeks, Will Hawk will be preaching and we'll continue on in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. But we've got a lot of work to do today and a lot to think about, and I'm excited about this text. So let's read 1 Corinthians 11. And as always, we don't want to just parachute down into a text without it, some explanation of where we are. A few years ago, we preached through the book of 1 Corinthians, or the letter of 1 Corinthians, And I love this letter because it is a letter to a church that was a complete mess. And I find that really encouraging because, well, come on, Crosspoint. (laughs) That's right. We are a church that is a complete mess, right? And that's, I mean, yeah, praise God. The church is for broken, busted up, sore, and needy sinners, And it's incredibly encouraging to see the things that the Apostle Paul was writing to them about, strangely encouraging. They were divided, they were not unified, they were uh, really promoting their own factions, and they had all sorts of issues. not saying we've got those issues, but the point is, is that no church is perfect, but yet God loves His imperfect church because He's making them into His people. And the issue at hand in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we'll read in verse 17 through 34 is that the church, when they were gathering together to remember the Lord's work on the cross, commemorated through this meal called the Lord's Supper, which Jesus gave them instruction to do in Matthew chapter 26, which we'll read in just a moment, they were completely missing the point of this meal, this feast, which was not to gorge yourself and be a glutton and to prefer yourself, but to In fact, remember Christ and to prefer one another. So with that, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. The Apostle Paul writes these words. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, 
It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Verse 33, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we are so grateful for, to, your, for, to you for your kindness to us in Christ that, oh Lord, just Just help us think about this, that we can gather together as your people, opening your word without fear of persecution. And yet, there are brothers and sisters in the Lord all around this world who do not have that freedom, do not have that grace. Lord, we remember them this morning. We remember the persecuted church. We remember Christians in in Nigeria who are being... uh, is treated horribly by these radi- radical, evil terrorists. We pray for Christians in the Middle East who are meeting underground, for Christians in China who are meeting under the threat of government persecution. Lord, we are so grateful for your grace to us. May we not take it for granted. May it not cause us to be lulled to sleep. May you open our eyes to the beauty of your word this morning and to what we are doing when we gather together to take this meal. May you shake off the heavy bounds of bands of cultural Christianity. May Christians in this room today see afresh the beauty and the sufficiency of the work of Christ and all of its implications in our life. And may people that came into this room as unbelievers, may you, by your kind and sovereign mercy, give them the very thing that they cannot produce on their own, which is the gift of repentance and faith. 
so that they might see Jesus and know him and follow him and obey him. Lord, I pray that you'd do these things for our good in your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want us to look at five reflections concerning the Lord's Supper, and then we are, as a church family, going to come together and receive the Lord's Supper together. So five reflections that I think come out of this text about what we are doing when we come to this table, to the Lord's Supper. The first is that we come to remember the gospel. In fact, I think that is the primary thing that we are doing here. Look again at verses 23 through 26. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Paul is hearkening back to Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29, where Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, before he went to the cross, often called the Last Supper with his disciples, that's portrayed in that famous painting by some famous author. I know somebody's emailing it to me right now. That that Last Supper there, that, that is what is happening. It, that Jesus is giving this instruction that now Paul is reminding and teaching the church in about. And what's happening there on that Last Supper is that Jesus is foreshadowing the events that are about to happen, where he is going to bear the sin of all of God's people on the cross, extinguish it, And rise again in victory over that sin. And and Jesus is using the symbols of bread to represent his body, which is offered as a sacrifice for the sins of God's people. And he's using the symbol of the wine, the cup, as a symbol of his blood of the new covenant. So notice the words that Jesus is saying there. He's saying that this is this bread is my body. And he's saying it is for you. And that when you receive this meal, that you should do this in remembrance of me. And so clearly right there, Jesus, in, in plain, in picture form with these elements, the bread and the wine, is preaching, he's displaying, he's symbolizing the good news of the gospel, what he has been sent to do to lay down his life, his body, to bear the wrath of God against our rebellion and to completely extinguish it and remove it so that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and rise again in victory over it and now to write a new covenant in his blood. Now here's this idea of covenant before we move on to the next reflection that I want us to see this idea of what Jesus is saying there when he says that this is the new covenant now. In my blood, this cup represents that. In the Old Testament, God was making covenants with his people along the way. And really you could argue that they're really just kind of one big covenant where he's saying that I 
will finally and fully save you. I will do what you cannot do by sending my son Jesus to live the life that you should live, to bear the wrath that you cannot bear, and to rise in victory over the enemy of death and sin that you cannot defeat. And so there's this one great covenant, but specifically in Jeremiah chapter 31, we see this new covenant that God promises through his prophet Jeremiah. And listen to these words in Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And listen to this last line, so important. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And so when Jesus, now how is this going to happen, okay? How is God going to finally and fully forgive iniquity and forgive his people so that they are right with him forever and ever? Well, that is going to happen through the final and full sacrifice of his son and his blood that was spilled. So to understand this link of what Jesus is saying here between, he's saying, I am establishing this new covenant with my blood. And when you come to this table, that's what you are remembering. You have to understand what covenants were ratified or initiated with oftentimes in the Old Testament. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham, right? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I, some of you are already moving. All right, there we go. Okay, so this covenant that God makes with Abraham, he says, Abraham, you will be my man. Okay, the whole world is sinful and lost. And I, not because you're good, Abraham, but because of my sovereign grace. This is a picture. God chooses Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you my man, and I'm going to make a people come from you, which eventually is the nation of Israel, which then becomes the trunk of the people of God, which is the church, the Jews and the Gentiles, those for all time, whoever will trust in Christ. But he says, Abraham, I will make you my man, and I am going to make a covenant with you. But see, this covenant isn't a situation like a man-made covenant would be, where we would say, like, I'm going to do this part if you do this, your part. No, the covenant that God makes with Abraham is a one-way covenant. In fact, God says, here's what you do, Abe. Get some bulls and some goats and some birds, bring them together, cut them in half, and lay the, carc- the halves of each of the sides of the animal, kind of split it in half. And then he causes Abraham to fall asleep, and God, signifying his presence with this, like, smoking pot, walks through the middle of these slain carcasses. And what what happens when you cut an animal in half? What is there? There's a lot of blood, right? And it's a kind of picture of the blood that is required to ratify an agreement between God and man. 
And God is saying to Abraham, I'm signing this covenant in blood. But it's not if, and this is what kings would do when they would cut an animal in half and they would walk through. That was a very customary thing that kings or uh, people in high position, when they were entering into a covenant, they would cut an animal in half and then together they would walk through the animal. And what they were saying is that if I break the covenant with you, may it be done to me what has been done to this animal. In other words, cut me in half. And if you break the covenant with me, may be, it be done to you what is done to this animal. In other words, spill your blood, cut you in half. But notice what God does here. He causes Abraham to take a nap, puts him on a little cot. Well, I'm making that part up. But he, puts, he makes him take a nap. God cuts these animals in half. Blood is spilled. And God's presence signified by this smoking lantern God moves through the middle of these these slain animals with all this blood. And so what God is saying, he's saying, Abraham, if I break this covenant, may, may my blood be on my hands. And if you break this covenant, may your blood be on my hands. In other words, I'm establishing all the terms. I'm taking all the punishment for all the breaking of the covenant, even if you break it. Now, friends... What is that picture? Well, it pictures Jesus who died for us even though God did not break the covenant with us, but we broke it with him. So logic rationale says that the people that should be punished for breaking God's law is us, right? But the gospel flips that on its head and Jesus is saying here that the blood that will be spilled to forever finally clear away your iniquity and forgive sin is not yours but mine. And that's what Jesus is saying here with his body and the cup. He is saying what's going to happen tomorrow night and then for centuries, when you, remit, when you take this meal, you are to, of all the things that you're doing when you come to this table, you are to remember my work on your behalf, which is the most important thing in the world. What God has done through his son to sacrifice him, to bear sin so that his justice and holiness might be vindicated and satisfied and then cause that son to rise again in victory over it. That is what we do when we come to this table. It's not just a strange little piece of bread and a little cup of juice. It signifies the body laid down for us and the blood spilled for us and the blood that ratifies the new covenant of grace. Right? Now, if you are not yet a Christian, and I just want to come alongside you, if you've got some, if you're scratching your head a little bit and saying that's strange, um, I just want to come alongside you and go like, yeah, yeah, man, yeah. You may be thinking, why would God, who's all powerful, create a world that He knows, in fact, allows, in fact, in some mysterious way, providentially causes to fall, so that He will be able to rescue it out of its fall through the work of his son, you may wonder, why would God, is God, you may be saying to me, Brad, it's almost like God, because this lamb, he says later on at the end of the Bible, this lamb, Jesus, is slain before the foundation of the world. You're almost saying like, Brad, it's kind of like rigged from the beginning. 
yeah, I think that's exactly what the Bible says. And you may say, why would God do that? And I would say, well, friends, um, I, 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 I think that's a good question. And I think that the Bible answers it in places like Romans 9, where it says that God has, what if God has done this? To display his glory in a greater measure by creating a creation that he would allow to fall so that by saving it, he would bring more glory to himself and more joy to the redeemed. Now, friends, is that a difficult concept to grapple with? Absolutely. But I just want to come alongside you and say, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a big view of God and a little view of us. And that is a, I think that's a biblical way to look at it. We could go down that rabbit trail for a lot longer, but we'd miss the Super Bowl if we went down that <laughs> rabbit trail. So we come to remember the gospel, this new covenant. Now, before we move on to the second covenant, I need to apologize to you as a church because last Sunday, January 31st, was the anniversary of Charles Spurgeon's death in his mid-50s. He died on January 31st in 1892. And I did a really poor job by not reading you a Spurgeon quote last week. (laughs) As the number one fanboy of Spurgeon... That was a poor job on my part. Let me read you a Spurgeon quote on this idea (laughs) of remembering the gospel by what we're doing when we come to the table. And in this sermon, this quote from the sermon, he's reflecting on this night that Jesus is betrayed during the Last Supper later on where he knows that he will be betrayed, where he is in prayer wrestling with the Father and asking God to actually take... So Jesus, is fully man, fully God, is asking the Father to take this cup from him, but ultimately saying, Lord, if it be your will, whatever, don't let this cup pass. I will do whatever you want to do. And listen to what uh, Spurgeon reflects on this. He says of this work of Christ, the whole of the punishment of his people was distilled into one cup. No mortal lip might give it so much as a solitary sip. When he put it to his own lips, it was so bitter, he well nigh spurned it. Let this cup pass from me. But his love for his people was so strong that he took the cup in both his hands, and at one tremendous draft of love, he drank damnation dry for all his people. He drank it all. He endured it all. He suffered all, so that now, forever, there are no flames of hell for them, no racks of torment. They have no eternal woes. Christ hath suffered all they ought to have suffered, and they must, they shall, go free. (laughs) Now that will make you stand up and shout if you were a little bit more soulful as a church, wouldn't it? Someday, maybe. Someday. And when we come to this table and we take that bread and we drink that cup, we know that every bit of condemnation, every bit of distance between us and God for those of us who are trusting in Christ is extinguished. And we remember the gospel. Secondly, we come to remember one another and examine ourselves. 
So in the text that we read from 1 Corinthians 11 and verses 17 through 22, Paul is criticizing the church for the way that they were coming to the table. And the main critique that he has of them is that they were being selfish. In fact, this selfishness kind of broke along uh, economic lines in this particular instance. These rich Christians who had the wherewithal to kind of have a huge feast, were gorging themselves and cutting in front of the line and completely disregarding the needs of the poor amongst them. And so there were, there were these divisions, and he said, some of you, I mean, come on, you're making this a kind of self-absorbed feast. You guys are catering in from the nicest restaurant in town, gorging yourselves, and there are some of you that are going without. And he's saying that that's not the way it should be. And then look what he says in verses 27 through 32. Let's read that again. He says, listen to these words. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now listen to verse 30, which we're going to look at in just a second. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. We're going to get to that in a second, because that's like, whoa, what's going on there? Okay, so what is Paul getting at? What is Paul's point? His primary point here is that when we come to the Lord's table, and we remember the gospel... To remember the gospel is to understand that the gospel doesn't only have vertical implications. That God has made us right with him for those who are trusting in Jesus through his son's sufficient and perfect work on the cross. He's saying that's not all there is to it. That this vertical experience of grace and mercy that we experience when we remember the gospel must bend itself horizontally into our lives as a community, as a local church. And he's saying that you guys are misrepresenting the very gospel that this table is intended to picture because you don't care for one another. You're being selfish and self-absorbed and you're not, you're not looking out for one another. And so Paul is saying that you should care for, remember one another, wait for one another. Sometimes people, I think, think, and I think it's a decent instinct, but I think it's a little bit off trajectory, is that what Paul is saying here when he says that we should examine ourselves, I think people that maybe kind of grow up in kind of the Bible Belt South, where maybe they had kind of a Bible-thumping, fundamentalist, legalistic sort of background, they think, oh, what that means is that before we come to the Lord's table, we need to kind of take an account of our past week or an account of the past month and just kind of think about all the little sins that we've done and make sure that we are clean before we come to the Lord's table. Now, while I think that part of the Christian life is a continual examination of where we are with the Lord, do you see how that over-introspection can actually cause us to forget the gospel, right? Because if Paul is not saying here, hey, before you come to this table, examine yourselves and make sure that every little nook and cranny, every little possible thing, well, of course, that's part of the Christian life. But friends, if we got so introspective before we came to the Lord's table, we would never be able to come. The table is for the sick and the sore. It's for the weak and the wounded. And all of us, 
Every week, every time we come to the table, come to the table, not because we, before we come to the table, have made things right with God by our performance that week, but we come to the table because we are confessing our need that although Jesus has made us perfect one time by his work on the cross, we are still in the process of becoming who we already are. Therefore, we need him every time, right? Do you see that? Do you see the potentially dangerous instinct to think that I have to kind of self-analyze? Now, certainly self-examination is part of the Christian life. But the tenor of what Paul is saying here is that we need to think about one another more than we think about ourselves, right? And then Paul says, and listen, come on, we're Americans. We don't like this type of stuff. Then Paul says... That in this particular instance in 1 Corinthians 11, the punishment that God is levying for this church not doing that is, verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Um, what, Paul? Okay, I, I want to... I, I, you know how I get amped up and sometimes I get a little ahead of myself and I stutter and I spit and I say things that I then have to apologize via email later on. Uh, let, I mean, calm down here. It seems clear that Paul is saying that the selfish Corinthian Christians who are preferring themselves over their less fortunate brothers that God is causing them to be weak, ill, and some of them, he's taken them out. Now, let's be careful. That does not mean that if we're sick sick or we're, you know, whatever, there's like, oh, God's punishing you. So the person that just sniffled next to you, you don't look at them and say, God's judging you. What, What sin is in your life, right? No, no. We have to take this in the balance of the rest of Scripture, don't we, right? And this, uh, it, what I think is happening here, in this particular situation, Paul is with the authority of apostles saying that God, just to show his seriousness and his power, is clipping some of you before you apostate yourself. That's what he says. Go on to verse verse. Verse, verse 30 again. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So what he's saying is, look, if you guys would take my instruction here and examine how you are doing in community with other Christians and loving one another, and therefore nipping selfishness in the bud before it becomes the problem that it is here, then God wouldn't have to judge you. And in this particular case, verse 30, when you're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. It's like God is, is the way God is bringing about the preservation or the eternal security of some of these Corinthians is he is killing them before they can lose their salvation. <laughs> I, I think that's really funny. You guys are like... <gasps> I think that's what's going on here. Let me read this quote from these commentators. From Now, these guys are alive. Usually, you have to be dead to get quoted by me on a Sunday morning. 
But these are two, two guys that are still alive, I guess. Names are Ciampa and Rosner. They wrote a really good commentary in 1 Corinthians. It says this, In much of the Western world today, perhaps especially in some evangelical context, and when we use the word evangelical, we're not talking about people that you know, just like to witness a lot, but the word evangelical is talking about churches like us that believe the Bible is, the God's, word, is God's word and believe that you must be born again to be a Christian. In other words, kind of like Bible-believing conservative churches especially in some evangelical context, the idea that God would judge his people in the way Paul suggests here is completely foreign. And people may be tempted to think that Paul's language reflects an antiquated and unenlightened view of God. Such an attitude reflects the extent to which the modern world has lost the biblical understanding of God's transcendence and fearsome holiness. In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis emphasized the idea that Aslan was not a tame lion, but in much evangelical culture at the beginning of the 21st century, the Christian God is a tame God, into whose presence people feel free to enter in a trifling or frivolous manner. Paul would have us know that the way we behave and worship and the way we treat other members of God's holy people are not to be taken lightly, but require the most serious circumspection. I think those are true words. And what's going on here, I think, is Paul is is exhorting the Corinthian church and the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul is exerting the church through the ages that when you're coming to this table, don't just do this vertical uh, interaction where you remember the gospel, but let it bend out horizontally because there's something bigger going on here in the local church than just your personal edification. There is the care for God's people and there is the witness to an onlooking world. So we come to examine our lives and to remember one another. And then thirdly, which I think follows from this, is that we come as Christians. So this is clear and obvious, I think. This meal is for believers. So if, it's, if we're coming in an unworthy way, like we're not caring about other people, I think certainly that would uh, sort of by extrapolation to not believe, to not be a Christian, there's no point in coming to the table if you're not trusting in Christ. And you may hear us when we do communion here. We do what is historically in the history of the church been called fencing the table. In other words, we, we put a kind of verbal fence around the table where we are saying, if you are not yet trusting in Christ, do not take this meal. Not because, you know, some voodoo doll thing is going to happen to you and God's going to strike you dead. But you, you, we don't want to lead you into sort of taking this meal in an unworthy manner. We don't want you to confess something that you don't believe. We don't want to make a hypocrite out of you. Now, in the impulse of the modern American church is to be so scared of the opinion of others, it's to say, oh, no, 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 churches, don't do that. That would be unloving to make people feel like they're not right with God in a worship service. Let me just say that again. That would be unloving to make unbelievers feel like they're, they're not right with God in a worship service. Friends, that's exactly what we intend to do every Sunday. It would be unloving to not make you feel like you are, right, you are not right with God if you aren't. Do you see that? So we're not, the point of cross 
cross point is not to get written up in some denominational journal about how many people we have coming. The point of cross point is not to make us feel good about church growth numbers. The point of this church and any New Testament church should be to be clear about what it means to be right with God and to let God's sovereign grace take care of the rest. And to give people the idea just because we want them to be comfortable in worship that they are right with God and will come to the table, you know, we'll figure it out later, is spiritual malpractice. Do you see that? And so listen, if you're an unbeliever like... Look here, bro. Or sis, I love you. I am so glad that you're here. And I pray one of the things that marks Cross Point for decades to come is that this is a safe and welcoming place for unbelievers. But we love you so much that we want to be clear with you about the state of your soul if you are not trusting in what God has done in Christ, which is the very thing that we are proclaiming when we come to this table. And so I want to make you uncomfortable. I want to make you squirm. I want to make you wrestle. I want to offend you. The gospel is offensive and I want to offend you because I love you. Now, I don't want to offend you unnecessarily and say stupid stuff, but I want to offend you with the gracious words of the gospel so that God in his kindness might use it to draw you to open your eyes to faith in Jesus. If you're not a believer, you should not come to this table. And if you're not a believer, you should know that if you do not repent, that what happened to those animals, what happened to Jesus on the cross, the punishment that Jesus took was not for the whole universe. It was only for those that are trusting in Christ. And unless you turn and trust in Jesus that punishment will someday bear down on you. So run from that. Come, come, come to the table and believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus and then you can come. So we come as Christians. And then finally, or fourthly, don't get excited, two more points. Fourth, we come together as a church. Look at verse, just, I'll just kind of read through them. Verse 17, when you come together. Verse 18, when you come together as a church. Verse 20, when you come together. Verse 33, when you come together to eat. Verse 34, when you come together. Five times there in the text, Paul makes this point that it is when we come together as a church, as a local church, as a witnessing covenant community, there's something bigger going on here than just our personal interaction with God There is this horizontal bending of the gospel and there is this collective display of what it means to be God's people to an onlooking world. And so God intends to use our regular remembering of of the Lord's work on the cross to be a kind of display to an onlooking world. Aha, that's what God's people believe and do. They remember that their only hope is in Christ and they are caring for one another by coming to this table and preferring one another. It is a communal act, hence the word communion. Now, that has led us as a pastoral team to consider rethinking about the way we practice communion here at Crosspoint. 
If you've been around for any length of time, you know that it is our practice to, on the first Sunday of the month, like today, to, to uh, do what we call congregational communion, where all of us that are Christians are invited to come. And then on the second, third, and fourth Sundays of the week, we leave it to kind of an individual response for people to come uh, and respond. Now, although we think that's been used by God to bless and encourage people, we are wondering, and pray with us, we're not changing anything anytime soon, but we are just wondering if that is the most biblical way to do it. Because in those subsequent weeks, other than when we come together as a congregation, to just sort of leave it for a few people to respond individually, we think could potentially be a little bit undermining this idea of us coming together as a church. Now, if you do that regularly, that's a good instinct. We want to commend that instinct. And we think that there's, if there's anything that is off on this, it is our, it is my leadership. But help us think, pray for us as we think through that. And we're, again, we're not changing that anytime soon. But the point is, is that we, when we come together, we want to come together as a church. And so we're considering, we're asking the Lord, if we're, if we're sort of on a wrong trajectory on this, should we just do communion once a month as a congregation and not at all any time in between the first of the month? Or should we do it every Sunday as a, a congregation kind of intentionally? Those are the things that we're wrestling with, thinking about the Lord's direction in that. But the point is, is that we come together not as individuals, but as a church. And then finally, fifthly, we come looking forward. Notice what the Apostle Paul says in verse 26. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So we are coming to this table not in mere sort of gravity, sort of grave somberness, remembering the gospel, But we also come with a spirit of gladness and joy and anticipation. So we are simultaneously looking back to the cross and looking forward to the great supper, the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Listen to what. Uh, Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 25. And what's going on in Isaiah 25 is that God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah. He's he's giving a word of rebuke for the rebellion of his people. But interspersed in his rebuke and words of judgment, he gives these words of hope of the future. And listen to what he says in Isaiah 25, uh, starting in verse 1. He says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For if you have made the cities a heap, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like a heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. And then in verse 6, listen, he points forward to this feast. So I want you to have this picture in your mind. That when we take this feast as a congregation, we are looking back to the cross and we are looking forward to the consummation of all things, the great feast that is promised at the end. In verse 6, 
On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. Verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So do you see what's going on here? The prophet Isaiah is speaking ahead of time to that great feast when Jesus will come again and he will swallow up death forever and he will conquer every foe. And when we come to this table, we come with this strange mixture of gravity, remembering the work of the Lord on the cross and gladness, anticipating that day when he will come again and we will dine with him forever. So we come to the table in gravity, and we leave the table in gladness because he's coming again and he has conquered every foe. And that's what we do when we come to this table. Let's now come and let's remember the gospel. Let's remember one another. A few weeks ago, we looked out of Matthew chapter 5. And it says that if you have something against a brother before you come to the altar... Leave your gift and go be reconciled. But see, oh no, Brad, that, that wouldn't be practical because we're Americans and we've got to go to lunch and, and we've got stuff to do. We need to be out of here by 12, otherwise the people start getting antsy and then we've got to go. Like right now, as we come and remember the gospel, do you have something against a brother or sister in this room? Hey, let's just get crazy and messy and biblical. Go to him right here and say, you know, we got some more talking to do. We're not going to solve this whole gig right now, right, right now. But I repent. How, how cray-cray would that be? <laughs> right? But we don't do it. We don't do it, do we? Because we've got a service to get through and lunch to go to and a waitress to get mad at and a nap to take. And we just keep doing that Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, right? And what does that do to our souls? It numbs us to the very thing that this meal is intended to work in our hearts. Let us remember the gospel. Let us remember one another. Let us come as believers, not because we're good, but because Jesus is good. Let us come as a church. And let us come looking forward to that great day when these 80 or 90 years will be swallowed up and Jesus will make everything finally and fully right. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this table now to, to respond, to receive, to proclaim, 
May you shake us out of our little traditional patterns. May you help, help us see afresh the beauty of the gospel. May we remember that it was your body and your blood for us. May we remember one another. May this meal produce in us a radical graciousness and patience for one another. We are ornery and selfish and grumpy people. And we need to be reminded of the gospel and how it should cause us to view other people. May our particularly American impatience burn up before we come to this table. May unbelievers in this room see clearly their perilous state before a sovereign, good, but yet fearsome God. And may the fact that they are not yet welcome to this table be part of the means that you use to break them of their hard hearts so that they will turn and trust in Jesus alone and thereby be welcome as a family member to this table. And as we come in gravity, may we also come in a beautiful mixture of gladness, knowing that this feast doesn't just look back, but it looks forward to that day when you will wipe away every tear and you will make every wrong right. And forever and ever and ever you will dwell with your people. And may the power of that promise draw us onward like a heavenly magnet to make much of you in the meantime in these 80 or 90 years. Lord, would you do it for the glory of your name and for the satisfaction of your people. In Christ's name.